We are diving right into the Christmas season today. Uh, In fact, we're starting a couple of things. Not only are we starting the Christmas celebration, this is our first Sunday of Advent. And uh, by the way, we started an Advent series on Wednesday nights, which is going to go a couple more weeks. So you could come on Wednesday night and talk with us about what it means to celebrate Advent as a tradition. Uh, But today here on Sunday mornings, not only are we beginning what will uh, really serve as a Christmas time series. We're also starting a series that uh, I've been joking with some people to say that we are probably going to be in this in this study for the next like hundred Sundays. Uh, now. That might sound like a bit of an exaggeration, but it is highly possible. I mean, you've heard me talk. If you this isn't your first Sunday, you know I can stretch a thing on. And you know when we did the book of Ephesians, it took about a year. And the book that we're about to begin studying today is significantly longer. In fact, we're going to begin a study that will take us through one-eighth of the entire New Testament starting today. Starting today, as we move into our Christmas celebration, we are beginning a study together through the Gospel of Luke. I am so, I, I'm so excited. I, I love Luke. Maybe you have not read the Gospel of Luke, but when I read Luke, I feel like he, he gets me. I feel like I'm, he's one of us. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But I, I love Luke's perspective on who Jesus is and the way that he highlights the ways people engage with Jesus. And, and that's going to be some of the stuff that we're going to try to draw out um, during this series. As we dig into the Gospel of Luke, we're going we're gonna to take some chunks of this book and, and just look at a bunch of verses. Like today, we're going to get through 38 verses uh, of the Gospel of Luke today. Pray for me. Uh, but we're, we're also going to have some Sundays where we're going to slow way down and go verse by verse and just look at, at, at a specific moment in the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And the goal of all of this is that by the time we get to the end of Luke, that we will have discovered and, and come to realize more and more about who Jesus is. Why did Luke write the book the way that he did? What does it say to us? What are the lessons? And we're going to just spend a bunch of time with Luke. Now, just so you know, the intention is we're going to spend so much time with Luke that when we're done reading and studying the gospel of Luke, we're going to move right on to his second book, which is the book of Acts. And so we're studying the story and the ministry and the life of Jesus. And then when we're done studying the story and the ministry and the life of Jesus, we're going to begin to study the founding of the New Testament church. So now you know what Life Church is talking about for the next five years. So if anybody ever asks you, hey, what do you do at church? You just say, well, we're studying Luke's writings. Uh, and that'll be the right answer for half a decade probably. So, uh, so it, it's going to be a good study. We have a lot of work to do. Will you pray with me as we begin this study? God, we are grateful for your word. We are thankful for all of the books in Holy Scripture, and we give our hearts today to you as we open the word and begin a study in a particular book, the Gospel of Luke. We thank you for Luke, we thank you for his anointing to write, and we thank you for the passing down of the Word of God all the way to us today as we begin this Christmas celebration. Lord, it feels as if as we study this, this, begin this study that there is really one thing that you want to say to us today, so I ask you, God, that you would help me to say clearly what you laid on my heart for us to hear as we begin this study today. Open our hearts to hear from you as we endeavor to do exactly that, God. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, now, why don't we do what uh, Luke would probably like us to do and tell you a little bit about why he wrote this book. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Now, I'm going to have a, a, a tendency to read to you out of uh, the CSB translation. Thank you, sir. Um, now, so I'll read that to you most often through that translation, and today we'll do exactly that. So I want to start with the first four verses of Luke chapter 1, and it says this. This is Luke writing. He says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Now, in these, what we know as four verses, keep in mind that these, none of the books in your Bible were written with uh, numbers in them, so they weren't written as verses. This was written as a, as a letter to somebody named Theophilus. We'll talk about him in a second. But in this brief section that we call the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke, Luke gives us an idea about his method for research and writing. He gives us an idea about his audience, and then he makes very clear his purpose for writing this gospel. Now, what you need to know about Luke is that he was a physician. He was a, a medical practitioner of his day. He was from an area called Antioch, uh, which is now on the, the southern border of Turkey. So if you go look at a map on where Turkey is, southern border, uh, that's where Antioch was. We now know that as Turkey. He wrote the book of Luke around, around somewhere between uh, 60, 55, uh, AD, um, somewhere between 20 to 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. Now, he wrote based on the accounts of the original eyewitnesses. Now, the original eyewitnesses is a really important term because it's the thing that gives Luke's gospel credibility. Uh, we understand that Luke was, was not written because of what Luke saw with his own eyes, but he, was, he wrote based on meticulous interviewing and study of the people who saw with their own eyes. So Luke's method required interviewing those original eyewitnesses, which is important that we place it in, in the historical moment where those eyewitnesses would have still been alive for him to, to interview. There's uh, some scholars who believe that one of uh, Luke's greatest written resources that he used for research purposes was the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's, it's understood that Mark most likely wrote his Gospel before Luke wrote his, and so he probably had Mark to talk to and then his book to reference as a study guide or a foundation, so to speak. It's actually one of the reasons why you see a lot of the stories between Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel are very similar in nature. Although Luke does add some things, which tells you he wasn't just pulling from one source, he was pulling from multiple eyewitnesses. There's stories in Luke's gospel that are in none of the other gospels, like, for example, the story of the prodigal son, which we are nowhere near talking about. Hold, hold on. Uh, we'll get there next year. Maybe. Uh, so those original eyewitnesses were the people that we would refer to as the apostles with a capital A, the apostles, the original, the originals of the 
the sending of the gospel around. Uh, and then also, not just the apostles uh, as these people who were originally told to send the gospel or bring the gospel around the world, but also members of probably the 170 disciples who were following Jesus around. These are other credible eyewitnesses who were watching Jesus and spending time with him. And then he meticulously recorded their stories as these, and he says it, as these eyewitness accounts were, quote, from Luke, handed down, right? So he, he knew that these people were handing these eyewitnesses down, and as a physician, as a meticulously minded person, thank God for the meticulously minded people who thought somebody should probably write this down so we can remember this hundreds of years later. Luke was one of those people, and he said, we got to write this down. Now, there is some debate at times uh, about whether or not Luke was a member of the 170 disciples that followed Jesus around, uh, but more, more biblical scholars would agree that he was not in the group of 170 people, that it's most likely that the apostle Paul, who was sent on missions trips, that in his early days of being a Christian, that Paul, probably when his name was still Saul, we'll talk about that when we study the, the book of Acts, uh, that Saul probably preached the gospel to Luke when he was in Antioch, or, or that they met at some point. And Luke then was converted to Christian faith and uh, committed his life to Jesus. And because he was a studious guy, that he set his, uh, his studying abilities from studying things like medical science of the day to studying the story of Jesus. Uh, there's some good reason to believe that Luke was on the missionary journeys as a traveling companion with Paul, and so that's where some of that idea comes. Uh, what that means is that Luke was, is the gospel, is the only one of the gospels written by a non-Jewish person who was among the 12 following Jesus around. This is part of the reason why I love the way Luke writes, because he's writing to us. He's, he's writing to the people who aren't of the original tribe. He's, he's writing to the world, so to speak. And no wonder why he then puts such a focus throughout his gospel and the book of Acts to make sure that we understand that the kingdom is for everybody. Right? So if you're, as you're studying Luke and as we study the, the book of Acts later and you're wondering if you belong, just remember Luke says you absolutely belong. And he's saying that because this is what Jesus says as well. Now that actually gets us into talking about the audience of the book of Luke. So he says this phrase, most excellent Theophilus, as he is writing uh, in, the, in the book of Luke in the very beginning. He says, I, I set out to write this orderly sequence, most, most honorable or most excellent in some translations, Theophilus. Now just for context, so you understand, um, some people say that Theophilus was, uh, was a Roman lawyer. Some people say that he was a relative of Caesar, so he was a person of influence in the community, and other people think that he was a Jewish high priest. Uh, the most likely scenario is that Theophilus was a Gentile person of some kind of social high rank. He was probably wealthy and had status and influences in his community. There's a really good possibility that he was a person of influence in Antioch, which is where Luke was from. So one scenario that is possible is that these guys were homies from before Luke was a Christian, and he's like, Theophilus, you got to join this family that I'm a part of. It's pretty awesome. And Theophilus goes, ah, I'm not really sure. And then Luke says, I'll write to you about it. 
that's a very likely scenario for why Theophilus is the name of the person that uh, is marked here. Now, just so you know, uh, the name Theophilus actually means loved of God or loved by God. This is, this is interesting, and it kind of throws up another theory about who Theophilus was. Some people actually say Theophilus wasn't a person, that Luke just put a placeholder there of a word that actually means loved by God so that whoever reads it knows that I'm writing to you. I'm writing to the people who are loved by God. Remember, one of the themes of Luke's gospel is everybody gets to play. Everyone's invited into the kingdom. And so it makes sense that whether Theophilus is a person whose name happened to be loved by God and reminds us that everybody is loved by God and therefore gets to read this book and meet Jesus, or if Theophilus wasn't a real person and he just picked a word or a name as a placeholder so that you know that you are the audience, the point still stands. You're the audience of the Gospel of Luke. He's writing to you. So all these years later, he's writing to you and me in Lancaster, California in 2023, almost 2024. As we study this book, he's saying, I want you to understand this. And what is it that he wants us to understand? Well, in verse 4, he tells us exactly why he is writing this letter. He says, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Luke is meticulous. He adds stories that no other gospel adds because he wants you to know this was not made up. This is a certain account. In fact, he adds details just so that you know this man knows what he is talking about. This guy did his research. And that's important because he wants you to know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. You almost begin to get an idea that Theophilus has heard about Jesus, but doesn't personally know Jesus. And something of the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the intention of Dr. Luke kind of marries itself together and produces this letter. And the goal of the letter is, you've heard about Jesus, read this, and you will know Jesus. So it's a pretty good book to study. Right? It's a good thing to begin to study as we come into the Christmas season. His desire is that you would know not just the story of Jesus, but that you would know Jesus personally. And so with all of that in mind, that's the, that's the preface for the book of Luke. As we journey through this gospel, uh, now we can move into the first story that Luke shares with us, the first chunk of the narrative of the Gospel of Luke. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at two announcements about babies, which have two radically different responses. And we're going to share, we're going to take a look at those two announcements about babies and their different responses so that ultimately God can ask us one question as we begin this Christmas season. In order to do that, I need to read you a couple of chunks of Scripture. And since I know you love the Bible, you're going to be okay with that. And so let's begin with the announcement to Zechariah. Now, if you don't know who Zechariah is, Luke is about to tell you. So just roll with Luke here as he tells us, starting in verse 5. It says, In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Remember, Luke is meticulous. Why did he tell you all that? So you know these are real people. 
They have family lineage. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. Good job, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Way to go. You are living according to the commands of the Lord. Now remember, Zechariah is a Jewish priest. Verse 7, but they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were, I love this phrase, well along in years. There's one word for that, right? They were? Okay. When his division was on duty, so like a, a picture like a, like a fireman goes on shift and goes and stays at the firehouse, and then they go off duty, and then they get a, a, you know, a chunk of time, like a week off, and they, they're at home. And when they're on, they're there, and they're doing certain duties, and then they're off, and they're back at home. Uh, there's multiple different kinds of jobs that are like that. Zechariah's job was just like that. So when his division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. It happened there, it happened that he, that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. Just for the record, that was a very serious thing to get to be chosen to do that. And if you went in and you turned out to be an unrighteous person, when you came out, you weren't alive anymore. God took this very, very seriously. Uh, and so at the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. Just for the record, that is the standard appropriate response to seeing an angel to be overcome with fear. But just so you know what Zechariah was doing, he was going into, his, his duty for that day was to go in to light the incense or to, to burn the incense at the altar of incense. Now, that's not just like a way to make your hippie friend's house smell good. There was actually a spiritually deep meaning uh, connected to all of this incense. So there was an altar of incense, and where that altar of incense was located was right in front of the curtain into the that entered into the Holy of Holies. Just so you know. Uh, imagine with me that you're in the, in the temple, and you've come all the way into the place where you're allowed to go if you're not a priest, and then Zechariah goes a little bit further than you because he's the, he's the priest and he's righteous, right? Uh, so he goes in and there's a place right here where there's an altar of incense. On the other side of the altar, there is a giant veil. And if, and if you, you're allowed to go in there if you're a very particular person once a year. And it's so important that you are righteous when you go that they actually strap a rope to you with bells and, and if the bells are jingling, then you must be righteous and if the bells stop jingling, then you must be dead and then they drag your corpse out and hire a new high priest. It's a very, very serious business. Thank God that the veil gets torn. We'll talk about that later. Um, anyway, Zechariah comes to do his job at the altar of incense. Now, what's really interesting about the altar of incense is that the reason that they light the altar of incense was to remind the people of God to be people of prayer and to, to remind them that as the incense burns and the, and the aroma goes up from the altar, that that is a picture of how God's people's prayers go up to him like a sweet aroma, right? And there's other things that happen on the altar, but that was what Zechariah was doing that day. He was going in to light the incense to remind the people, God hears your prayers. It's 
Very important job. And as he comes in, he, he looks at the altar of incense, and it says, to the right of the altar, there is an angel standing there. And Zechariah gives the appropriate human response. Dude's afraid. Okay. Verse 13, the angel does what most angels do in these moments when people are afraid. He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. There's basically two options when a person sees an angel. They either cower in fear, and so the angel says, don't be afraid, or they worship the angel, and the angel says, don't worship me. So uh, Zechariah chose option A, fear, and so he gave the appropriate response. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Listen to what he says. This is interesting considering what Zechariah was going in to do that day. Don't be afraid because your prayer has been heard. He says to the person whose job it was to remind the people that God hears their prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. Remember, because she was well along in age. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, that him meaning the Lord your God, the Messiah, in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of righteousness to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Wow. That's a good word. We're going to talk about why that was wildly significant in a second, but let's look how Zechariah responds. Verse 18. How can I know this? Zechariah asks the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is old. Then the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. Remember, like, we're worried. What if you don't come out alive, right? Why are you staying in there so long? All you got to do is go light a little candle and come on out, buddy. Get on out of here. Why are you in there for so long? When he did come out, could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, in other words, no sick leave after this happens, right? When the days of his ministry are completed, hang out here, buddy. We know you can't talk. You got work to do, though. Then he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Now, we're not going to get into the cultural reality that caused her to feel disgrace, uh, but let's celebrate with a woman who suddenly had her answer her, uh, to her prayers after all of these years. Now, so we talked a little bit about Zechariah being on duty to light the incense, the incense altar, uh, where, where it was and what all of it meant, right? But here's what's interesting is that as Zechariah engaged in this religious practice designed to remind everyone that God hears prayers, an angel, the angel Gabriel, 
stands right next to that altar and says, God has heard your prayer. And Zechariah's response, after seeing an angel and being afraid, he goes, I find that hard to believe. Now, there's actually something really interesting, uh, something else interesting about this response from Zechariah, and that is when you place this moment in its historical context. All right, so, um, it had been hundreds of years since the people of God had a true prophet, meaning there was probably some people running around saying, I've heard from God, but, but there, it had been 400 years since God had anointed a prophet to the people of Israel. 400 years. We uh, scholars call that, or we refer to that as something called the intertestamental period. This, this period between Malachi, the last true prophet of the people of Israel, and when God began to speak, revealing the New Testament, or in this moment, for example. Now, just for a historical context of your own, 400 years for us is the year 1623. The major American event that was happening 400 years ago today, or this, this season, it would have just happened, is the second Thanksgiving celebration. So, so we're talking about America time. From then to today, God's saying nothing. There's a lot of reason for that. We won't get into that today. We want to move forward. But I want you to just feel the weight of that for a second. Imagine God going silent and no one hears for 20 generations. No one hears anything from God for 20 generations. In all of that time, the people began to make factions among themselves and the people of Israel. These people said, this is the way to worship God. And these people said, this is the way to worship God. And these people over here said, no, 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 this is the way to worship God. And there was all of this division and silence from God all along. But this promise, one day the Messiah will come. And so 400 years of silence. An angel shows up in the temple when the man of God is there to light the incense to remind the people that God hears his prayer and the angel goes, God has heard your prayer and by the way, the answer to your prayer happens to also be linked to the story that you've been waiting for, the coming of the Messiah. This is really good news. This is awesome that the people of Israel are, are about to receive the one who will make way for the one. The Messiah and Zechariah, after 400 years, is the first person that God shows up to in the form of sending the angel Gabriel to say, buddy, it's now, it's happening. And Zechariah goes, can I talk to you about how old I am for a second? <laughs> Isn't it interesting that a people who have lost the ability to hear the voice of God would become self-focused? Zechariah's response to hearing that the time is now and God is on the move and he's doing something in and through your life is, I have reasons for why I don't think that you're going to be able to do that. Zechariah's response was doubt the religious man of God on duty to do the very important work of reminding the people of God that he hears your prayer, doubted that when God sends the messenger to say, I've been listening and now you're about to experience the answer, not only to your personal prayers, but to the prayers of the entire nation of Israel that you've been waiting for, 
on bated breath for 20 generations of people? I'm answering that today, and Zechariah's response is to talk about himself. I'm old, and so is my wife. He focused on his limitations, on the reasons why God could not do what he said he was going to do. Zechariah is communicating to Gabriel, I recognize that I see you and there's something terrifyingly special about you, but having heard your message, I choose to put more faith in the passage of time and what I can physically feel and see than in what you just said. That's significant. And, and the response to Zechariah about his doubt is also wildly interesting. Notice that Gabriel doesn't respond with, oh, never mind, we'll find someone else. We get to wrestle with that, by the way, when we talk about doubting Thomas in about seven years. <laughs> he doesn't say, never mind, we're going to find someone else. He says, you know what? Shut your mouth until you see it with your eyes. That's interesting. That's, that's really interesting. That God is so committed to his plan that he didn't say, I'll go find someone else to do it. He just said, I just would rather you not speak death over this. Okay, there's so many lessons we could talk about with Zechariah. We've got to move on because I've got to get to the verse 38. Okay, so that's the announcement to Zechariah. That's announcement number one. Announcement number two goes very differently. And it's given to a very different person. Okay, so we've met the religious leader, the scholar, like hours and hours, years of his life studying. He would have known the Torah backwards and forwards and been able to break all of it down, had all of his opinions about when and how the Messiah was going to come. God shows up to him in the form of Gabriel saying, the time is now, and he goes, nah, I doubt that very much, thank you. And God shuts his mouth. And so then the next person that he goes to is somebody wildly different. In Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, this is now about half a year later, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged or betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. An interesting choice of words. But she was deeply troubled by this statement. By the way, not just uh, the Lord likes you or he's blessed you, but the Lord is with you. Right? Oh, he didn't say that to Zechariah. He said to the one, just, I, love, just, I love the way Luke writes, the Lord is with you to the one who would carry the Lord. I was just like, the detail is so good. All right, okay. Nerd out with me for a second. Let's move on. Okay. Verse 29, but she was deeply troubled by this statement, because, you know, angel, and you said a crazy thing just now, uh, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid. Remember the requisite response, appropriate reply. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and his name and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Just so you know, 
Mary would have fully understood the implication of those words. You just told me that I'm going to carry in my womb the Messiah. She would have fully understood. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? Remember, betrothed, not yet married. Okay, verse 35, the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. Childless. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, Mary said. May it happen to me as you have said. And then the angel left. So Mary in this moment was a young lady, culturally and historically. I know this might sound strange to our modern Western sensibilities, but she was somewhere between 13 and 15 years old when she was having this conversation with the angel Gabriel. She was betrothed to Mary Joseph, not yet married to him, so they had not yet consummated their marriage. She was still a virgin. So a 15-year-old girl with little to no formal education meets an angel. And he tells her, you're going to have a baby, and this baby will be the eternal king that your people have been waiting for. And Mary replies with a question. Zechariah, by the way, replied with a question. But a different question when you talk about that, because Zechariah asked, how will I know? And Mary asked, how can this be? Zechariah wanted proof And he pointed to his reason for doubting. And Mary asked for understanding. In other words, she asked something akin to, how are you going to accomplish this? Because my current reality says that feels impossible. But how are you going to do it? Zechariah wants proof and points to his his reasons why he doesn't believe. Mary asks, how does God plan to overcome my perceived limitations in, a, in order to accomplish his purpose? The difference actually might seem small. You might feel like I'm just nitpicking here, but uh, scholars have historically agreed that there is a significant difference between Zechariah's question and Mary's question. Certainly, we can point to the fact that Gabriel seemed to have an understanding that Mary was asking a different question because Zechariah asked his question, and the immediate response is, shut your mouth. And Mary asks her question, and his response is, Here's, a, here's an answer. Here, here's the Holy Spirit is going to, to come upon you, and you will conceive, right? And then, and then Gabriel probably had some kind of, a, of an insight that her heart was humble and receptive to this sort of information. And then not surprising, the story ends with Mary's faith being highlighted in verse 38 as Luke writes that she says, See, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. And so Zechariah meets Gabriel, and he hears after 400 years the first prophetic utterance, the first time that God is moving the story forward after 20 generations, and he doubts. Mary, who has had very limited education and is not too religious to be able to hear God, 
hears a promise and says, you're a part of the story and says, may it be exactly as you said. And so the question comes to us as we begin the Christmas season. How do you respond when God says he wants to bring his kingdom into your life? What are the things that God has said to you? Here's my intention for you. Here's my purpose for your journey. Here's what I'm going to do that when I do it, it will be obvious that I did it because with you, it would have been impossible. How do you respond to that? Do you respond like a Zechariah? who then has to deal with the consequences and the effects of doubt, which is sitting and waiting and not being able to say anything hopeful for at least nine months? Or or do you you respond like Mary, who says, "I, I humbly submit myself to this plan. I may not understand it fully, but I submit to it. The question, I think, is how are you coming into this Christmas season? How are you carrying your story? Are you, are you carrying it with just going through religious motions like Zechariah seemed to have just been going through religious emotions? That he seemed to have somehow missed that lighting the altar of incense that reminded the people of God that he hears their prayer is exactly the place where God would answer the prayer. And he just seems to just like not make the connection at all. That, oh, of course, this is the proof I need. You're standing right here in front of me. And he didn't engage his faith. He would rather have just settled for going through the religious motions, thinking that maybe if I do this enough times, God will be pleased with me. Or bare minimum, I'll die and he'll just let me into, into the, the kingdom of heaven. Mary and her childlike naivete, her, her, her childish perspective of the world was somehow still wise enough to say, this is God and I just choose to trust. How are you coming into this season? Today, the first Sunday of Advent, as we begin the journey towards the manger scene, as we begin the, the journey towards the celebration of Jesus God himself incarnating, coming into human flesh so that he becoming one of us could make us like him. As he invites us into his kingdom, are you coming into his kingdom in this Christmas season like it's not that big of a deal? Or could you take a moment and put yourself in Zechariah's shoes and respond how he should have responded. God, I've lit, I've lit this incense before. I've sent these prayers up to you before. It looked like it was never going to be answered, but God, today I come with a sense of wonder. How do you carry the prayer requests that you've bought, brought before the Lord over years that feel like they've never been answered? Do you come now? Has your heart grown calloused and you've not even continued to pray? Or do you come and bring those needs to the Lord and saying, God, I know that by now you probably never will answer this prayer, but I guess just to be obedient, I'll continue to pray. When I think about that, I think about the people I'm praying for that would fall in love with Jesus, that I've been praying for for decades. Think about those people for a minute. Have you stopped praying? Have you, have you stopped asking and have you stopped wondering that maybe the power of the gospel story could invade their life in 2023? And what if it does? Would you even see it? God, may we be people who are so in awe and wonder of who you are and what you've done 
that our hearts would be like Mary, that our hearts would be raw before you, sensitive before you. By the way, I should tell you this, that if, if, you, if you're sitting here and you're going, man, I'm, I'm a Zechariah. Come back a couple of weeks from now, you're going to see something good. Because if Zechariah was going to say something to your lack of faith today and your doubt in the place where your heart has grown callous and you're just going through religious emotions, I, I, I think that Zechariah would look at you and go, just, just hang out. It works out okay. Like you'll get there in the end, right? So even there, even in Zechariah's doubt, remember that Gabriel didn't say, well, then since you doubted, you don't get to see the promise or you don't get to be a part of what God is doing in his kingdom right now in the world. Maybe you don't feel like you have anything good to say. Maybe you feel like your mouth has been shut up and there's no hope coming out of your mouth. The invitation from Zechariah would be, that's okay, sweetheart. Just stay quiet until you see the goodness of God. But the hope there is you will see the goodness of God. And may you see the goodness of God. So as we move towards a practice today, as we begin this series and begin this Advent season, I think there's two questions that we should answer. And I want to give you a moment to reflect on these very questions. I want to read you one more very short passage of scripture, and then today we're going to practice communion together. The question number one is this, are there places in your life where you struggle with doubt? Do you want to be a Mary or a Zechariah? Now, I know what I want to be. I want to be a Mary, but are you a Zechariah? Are there places in your life where you struggle with doubt? What do you do with those places? The second question would be this. Are there promises that you are still waiting to see become a present reality for you? Maybe these are promises for your personal life, for a, a, a sense of anointing, for ministry. Maybe you feel like God said you were going to do something and you just feel like you haven't seen it. Are, are, you, are you giving up on those because it's been a while? Or maybe can you be inspired by Mary this Christmas season to believe now? As you think about where you would hold the answer to those questions, listen to Hebrews chapter 10, because I, I think that if Zechariah were to read something from Scripture to us today, Hebrews 10 verses 35 through 39 might be one of the places that he would take us. The author of Hebrews writes, So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I will have no pleasure in him. By the way, that's the same author who just one chapter later says, uh, without faith it is impossible to please God. But verse 39 says, but we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. We are not those who draw back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and are saved. As we begin this study through the book of Luke and as we begin our Advent season and as it is our tradition on the first Sunday of every month, for multiple reasons it's appropriate that we end our service today by taking communion. 
And so our tradition here has been to have an open communion table, which means that you don't have to have signed a piece of paper with us to have uh, an invitation to take communion. You simply have to have been a person who has placed your faith in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to take communion with us at Life Church today. Over the next few moments, we're going to practice our, our tradition of communion, and this is how we do it in these days at our church. There are two trays, or two tables rather, on either side of the stage, and you're going to be invited in just a moment to come and receive communion. Now, here's the invitation today. The invitation is, as you come, answer the question, are you receiving Jesus into your life today? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the one millionth time. Today, Jesus, I receive you as I take the cracker and I take the juice. I receive you. And then I think another thing that I'd invite you to reflect on as you come is, are you receiving the invitation into God's eternal kingdom? Not to a tradition, but to a way of being. Begin to come now. And I want to invite you over the next few moments. You'll take a cracker, and you'll take a cup, and then you'll return to your seat. And as you do, reflect on those questions. I'll lead you through a prayer in just a few minutes. Then we'll close out our time. Holy Spirit, give us the gift of faith. Helping us to hold tightly on to our conviction that our God always keeps his promises. God, in this Christmas season, we honor you as the God who has come and the God who will come again. As we live in the now and the not yet, the waiting, the in-between of the story, we choose to believe that you have come. And we choose to believe that you will come again. And friends, I charge you with this blessing as we end our time today. May you be like Zechariah, a faithful servant of the things that God has put your hands to. And as you serve, may you also be like Mary, humble and quick to believe God. May you encounter the Savior of the world with wonder and joy in this Christmas season and in every season of your life. May your faith sustain you. May your king bring you rest and peace, and may your joy inspire faith in others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.